Uh, I've gone to softball games out, out here in the East, but I come from a long line of softball players. Matt, do they play softball much around here? But I don't, I don't think it's an article of faith like it is in the Midwest. You, you see it once in a while here. But in the Midwest, softball is, is almost a religious ritual. And practically every neighborhood has its own softball team. You know, the only guy I've ever read, uh, any, the only writer that I've ever read on the subject, uh, whoever wrote, wrote about this was Nelson Algren. Did you ever read Nelson Algren's stories of the softball players? Uh, <laughs> Algren, who is a Southside writer who uh, writes uh, and has written in the past about a few of the uh, the true pieces of Americana. I don't suppose it would have much uh, real interest to people around here because it isn't as much a part of their life. No, it may interest you, but it does not... No, seriously, I can't get interested in in Updike. No, some people can. Now, the people who can are people who really believe that life begins and ends somewhere around Westfield, New Jersey. Uh, it stops just the other side of Darien and begins to peter out somewhere near Trenton. Uh, these are the people who... <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean. I can't get interested in him particularly, and... And I doubt whether many people would be as interested as I am in reading, say, I'd love to... I, in fact, I, I think I may write uh, a short story or two one of these days about life as a softball player. Now, I'm going to tell you about a guy, uh, this me, at one period of my life, got fantastically involved in this game. Now, I mean seriously, to the point where I was making dough at it. Uh, we, had a, we had a... Now, remember, this is the, this is the steel mill world. And every neighborhood in that area had its own softball team. And as a matter of fact, almost every softball team centered around the tavern. Uh, there, yeah, there'd be Flick's Tavern. There'd be the Bluebird Tavern. There would be Charlie and Al's Tavern. There would be Jake's Tavern. And all these various taverns would have their own colors. <laughs> and uh, every every year there would be uh, the league would be formed uh, around about April or May, and there would be the drawings and all that stuff. And by the first of June, the first games would be already underway. Now most of these ball games were played at night because the guys spent their afternoons working in the open heart, usually, or working in the puddler mill or someplace like that. And so after work, the uh, the ball players. If you uh, this this is a you, you want to hear a, a description of this after work is the way it would be the guys would uh, most of the guys would be on the day shift of course because there was a, a, a there was an unwritten law in the steel mill in fact it was almost written into the union regulations that any guy who was a softball player worked during the summer only the day shift so that he could play softball at night because softball was very important to that area <laughs> really it was it was just like uh, it was like, for example, if uh, if you have a, a real good basketball team, let's say at uh, Long Island U or someplace where there's a real good ball club, like Seton Hall, well, there's an unwritten law that's, that basketball players do not have to do the same stuff that ordinary students do. Uh, everyone pretends they do, but in actuality, it doesn't quite work out that way. And so if old Charlie has played a tough ball game against NYU the day before, this six-foot-nine-inch forward... And if he falls asleep in the middle of economics, too, nobody says much about him because, after all, you know, he scored 27 points last night and he's on his way to becoming an All-American, so they don't push him around. Well, that's the way it was in, in the industrial softball world. And so no matter where you worked, if you worked at the Lindy Air Company, if you worked at Goldblatt's, if you worked at the Roundhouse, 
if you worked at the steel mill, if you were a softball player, and you, you, were, you were always recognized as a softball player because usually when you worked at whatever place you worked, you would wear last year's jersey as your work clothes. So no matter where you worked, if you worked in the tin mill, you would always be with this uh, yellow and blue jersey on all the time. It's a number 42 in the back, and in the front it would say Flick's Tavern. And <laughs> that would that would be the official sign that you were a softball player, which meant, of course, that during during the softball season you were automatically on the day shift. All the other guys had to work the swing shift or they worked the midnight shift. So you would get off at four o'clock. You would go home, and uh, you'd get home. You'd ride the bus home. You'd get home about the uh, old quarter to five, something like that. And you'd have supper. You'd sit down to your uh, meatloaf, and you'd have your You'd have your uh, red cabbage or whatever it was. You didn't eat very much on the on the night of a ball game, and then about six o'clock, you would go to the hub of where you the hub. It would be the equivalent, actually, of uh, oh the uh, the dressing room at Yankee Stadium. You at our our hub. Depending on what you, what team you were playing on, what what year, what next, you know, yeah, you, you'd shift around. You know, guys would move to a different neighborhood, or they'd get a better offer. You get a better offer from the Bluebird. For example, if the Bluebird Tavern really needed a shortstop, I remember the, I remember the time the Bluebird stole uh, Claudie Eaton from us. Claudie Eaton was our ace shortstop, and they they uh, stole Claude Eaton from us because the Bluebird Tavern offered him free fish on Friday night for him and up to two friends. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And so it was it was an unwritten law that if you played for any one of these. Uh, any one of these uh, tavern teams, you got all the beer you wanted. Well, the Bluebird offered Claudie Eaton not only beer but fish. And they offered it to... And it was a terrible scandal, and there was a lot of... It, they even had it written up in the paper that there was a deplorable thing beginning to happen in the softball leagues, and that was stealing other guys' players. Claudie Eaton uh, was stolen from the Flicks Tavern Eagles, of which I was a proud member. Now, here's what happened. At 6 o'clock... <laughs> at 6 o'clock... Uh, you'd show up down at the tavern, which uh, in the case, let's say I'm playing for Flick's Tavern this year. So I show up at Flick's Tavern, and the guys begin to drift in one after the other. Everybody's got on his jersey. Uh, and every year we'd have different colored jerseys. So let's say this one year, I remember one year we had jerseys that had uh, yellow silk sleeves and blue body, you know, these rayon, nylon-type jerseys. And we had gold hats, big gold hats, with a big F, Flick's Tavern on it, a big blue F on it. And we had gold pants, you know, those uh, tight gold pants with a big blue stripe down the side. And we had we had the high blue socks with gold stripes, uh, the vertical gold stripes on them. And uh, we all wore uh, spike shoes. We'd come in with our spike shoes over our shoulder with our gloves. And we would all slide in behind uh, a stool in the Flick's Tavern, and we'd have our beers. And we're waiting for everybody to show up, the driver to show up, the whole thing. Flick himself, this is, this is Flick's dad, by the way. He sponsored the ball club. So finally, Flick's dad would show up, and two or three cars would be lined up out in front. We'd all go out and pile into the cars, and we would take off for St. Ignatius. Now, this night, we would be playing the St. Ignatius Blue Devils, which uh, was kind of an ironical thing <laughs> for a, cheap, a church team to be called. And we would show up uh, about, uh, oh, maybe 7, 7.30. We'd drive to South Chicago. The ball club would be in three different cars, all of us are hollering, yelling out the window, throwing beer cans out, you know, the whole scene. And we would show up, and, and we'd pull up by the St. Ignatius Field, which was uh, on the south side of Chicago. And already there'd be maybe 500 cars all lined up all around the ballpark. You know, it's a great feeling. I, I don't know uh, 
you don't see this. Uh, I, I really don't see this at all in, in the East. But there is a, a definite club neighborhood involved uh, kind of a dynamic sense of oneness uh, that you get uh, when, when there's a neighborhood ball club like this meeting another neighborhood ball club. We would pull up in front of this park, and there'd be about five or 600 cars already all around. They'd, be, they'd start parking there about 5 o'clock in the afternoon to get a good spot. They'd be by third base and all the way around. And then by the time the ball game would start, the cars would be parked all the way out the left field foul line, all the way out the right field foul line. And the, and the stands would be packed with all these Polak girls and all the Lithuanian Czechs and all, all the Hungarian girls and all, you know, everybody. They're all out there. And the puddlers and the steel mill workers and the whole crowd. And there'd be about five priests from St. Ignatius out there. And, and we, would, we would drive up. And one by one, we'd all get out together like the, like the, uh, the arriving conquerors, the, the barbarians are arrived on the scene. And, the, and immediately, all the horns would start blowing. Boo, boo, boo! The horns would blow, and we'd trot out on the ball field. What a, what a great sense. And we trot, I don't think I've ever talked about this at all. We'd trot out on the ball field, and now it's getting to be twilight. It's about 7 o'clock, 7.30, and it's hot. Oh, boy, it's hot. And mosquitoes. The mosquitoes are drifting all in from the outfield. And you can smell. There's always about four guys working around in the stands there selling things like, uh, oh, like uh, popsicles. And, and you can smell the guy's got a hot dog, a little cart, you know, he's selling the hot dogs. And they also used to sell a thing on the south side, which I never see here, uh, in the Polish neighborhoods. They used to sell rolled, uh, it had chopped meat in it, rolled cabbage leaves. Uh, like here in the East, they sell knishes, and they sell uh, that kind of stuff. They'd sell rolled, chopped cabbage leaves, and stuffed. And it, had a, <laughs> and it would have a plastic uh, toothpick stuck through it. And they, these would all be sort of floating in there, kind of kind of like a tomato. Oh, no, they were good. Don't say, oh, ugh. They were floating in tomato sauce. And all these Polish people, they'd be buying these things and sit there eating them. You could smell the salami sandwiches, and guys would bring beer and you could hear the kids crying and everything, and we'd be all out there war warming up, you know, passing the ball back and forth and throwing them in and batting, taking batting practice. And invariably, from the very beginning, there'd be about six guys would start riding you. Uh, I'd get up to bat. I'd, I'm taking my swings, uh, my batting practice swings, and some guy, hey, oh, hey, oh, Stasha, oh, hey, oh, oh, wow, this guy swings like a blind case, oh, wow. And you're up there, you know, the big old conquering here, and you line a couple of them out against the wall, and then you turn around with that snotty look. All right, smart, Jack. And you trot out the first base, and you kick the bag, and you go around the second, and you pick up your glove, and you trot out the center field, and you're throwing the ball around. And then you would see the St. Ignatius Blue Devils. They would arrive with their blue suits. Uh, they had blue suits. They had... They had blue suits with white sleeves. I remember they had white sleeves. They had white pants with blue stripes down the side. This big blue devil right in the middle of their jersey. And on the back it says, St. Ignatius. Hi, hi, Stash. And there was about 15 guys on the team named Stash. <laughs> which, uh, which is a, t a typical... <laughs> Speaking of devil. Oh, this is WNACAM at WRKO-FM. All right. Matt, one, two, three. <laughs> ah, take me out to the ball game. Take me out to the park. Oh, oh, buy me some peanuts and cracker jack. 
I don't care if I never come back. Da 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 the out at the old... Oh, yeah. It's the old Shea Stadium there. <laughs> Boy, I want to... Uh, uh, you just, uh, you're just going to have to go along with me. I say maybe twice or three times a year, the performer should be allowed to uh, indulge himself. Now, you'll just have to put up with me that I'm on my softball night, and this is something that is soft and uh, very close to my heart, and I'm just going to have to continue with this So, uh, for those of you uh, to whom baseball or softball turn blue, well, I suggest that uh, you turn blue. Uh, We're going (laughs) to... We're going to continue. You know, uh, for for those, uh, perhaps uh, those of you who don't know anything about softball, uh, I wonder how many of you are aware that Joe DiMaggio made his first fame as a softball player. In fact, he was first scouted playing softball. Uh, there was an old, there is an old uh, fact, as a matter of, uh, of actual record, that if you can, if you can, uh, if you can hit 250 in softball, I'm talking about fast pitching softball. If you hit 250 in softball, that is roughly the equivalent of hitting 375 in hardball. And uh, Joe DiMaggio was a 300 softball hitter, which is practically unheard of. And uh, when the word got out, uh, the San Francisco Ball Club, I think he played with the San Francisco Seals in his uh, early days in uh, organized ball. When they began to hear about this fantastic softball player, uh, they sent scouts down, and here was this guy who was hitting everything that they were throwing up at him, and he was hitting softball. And so uh, they called him out to the park to, uh, to work out with the Seals, and of course, immediately thereafter, he was signed, and he went on to become a New York Yankee, but he was a softball player. Uh, one of the uh, one of those most scary feelings I can think of right offhand, one of the sickening feelings, uh, is to be playing at night uh, in a softball game, fast pitching. Uh, you're playing uh, in the infield. You got the scene? You're in the infield. Uh, you're playing uh, second base. Uh, the pitcher winds up. There's the pitch. Uh, the batter is a right-handed hitter. He swings. You hear the sound of the ball being hit. Now, you're playing at night, remember. Uh, the, the lights uh, on the average softball field are about as good as the lights in the average used car lot. In fact, quite often, a softball field is a used car lot during the day. <laughs> so you're not exactly playing in, uh, in Fenway Park. You know, they, they're not exactly playing in Shea Stadium. I mean, the lights uh, leave a little bit of desired. And so you hear, pow, like that, you know, with a real hard shot. And for an instant, you don't know where the ball is. That one brief instant, you know that you've lost the ball. Talk about a panic. I mean, that panic starts down around your ankles and comes right out your ears. It squeezes out like like toothpaste for that brief instant. And I remember one night, I'm, uh, since uh, you want to talk about that moment of panic, that one night I'm playing second base, the wind-up, the pitch, the swing, the slap of the ball, that brief panic, knowing that the ball, uh, I've lost the ball. I don't know quite for an instant where it is, which way it's gone. The lights again, of course, the bad scene, the bad lights, the pitchers in the way, one thing and another. I don't know where the ball is. Then that feeling of relief that it is going down the left field line, 
And then that sudden feeling that it ain't, and the next thing I knew, bang, I got it right in the mouth. Now, that's the story right there. Now, I, I remember one night, uh, it's funny how you'll pick out one little memory out of a thing. Uh, I must have played in probably, uh, over the years that I played softball, I probably played in, gee, let me think here now. We played about, we used to play sometimes as many as two games, uh, sometimes two games a night. Uh, we played as many as uh, five, six, sometimes seven, eight games a week. And the season would begin around June 1st and would not peter out till about the first week in October. So you can figure out the number of games that we must have played during a season. We played almost as many games as a major league ball club plays. About 150, 160 games. And I would suspect that, <laughs> uh, that, that I must have played in at least four or 500 uh, league games of one kind or another. And you know these leagues... Uh, that's something else that uh, I have to explain. These leagues were highly organized, and almost all the games that we played were at night. And uh, I don't know whether you've ever batted against a fastball pitcher, uh, a softball fastball pitcher using the small, you know, the small ball mat, a fastball pitcher who really was good. I'll tell you, uh, as I sometimes when I'm watching uh, the Mets play or when I'm watching the Yankees play, and you know they have the shot from behind home plate, and you see the pitcher wind up, uh, and he throws that fastball in. I watch that thing, and as an old ex-softball player who has batted against really fast softball pitching, uh, that ball coming down uh, from the fastest of the hardball pitchers looks like a slow blimp. Now that sounds like like uh, it sounds like it can't be true, but it is quite true. Why? Because the distance between the softball mound and the catcher's spot and home plate is about a third shorter. You know, that's a shorter distance. Uh, furthermore, his mound is higher. Did you know that, Matt? That mound is higher. Uh, secondly, and most importantly, a, a good softball pitcher can throw that ball just as hard as a fastball pitcher. So here's this thing traveling about a third less distance. Uh, furthermore, it's coming down from a higher height. Oh, boy, that thing just comes down. And and uh, the deliveries of the softball pitchers generally were shiftier than the deliveries that you see on regular hardball pitchers. I batted against both. Now, why that is, it's because the hardball, of course, is thrown overhand. Uh, most generally, it's an overhand pitch. Sometimes it's a sidearm pitch. Rarely is it an underhand pitch. Whereas a softball pitcher throws that ball uh, technically underhand, but in actuality it really is an underhand. It's a it's a kind of modif if if you can imagine a guy has has worked on his arm so much that he's throwing a ball overhand, but he's doing it underhandedly. Uh, now how they do that is like this. Here's an underhand pitch. Now I will demonstrate. Here's really an underhand pitch. This is what what your grandma throws. You know, she goes like that. And says here, catch. She throws it underhand. Well, here's the way a softball pitcher throws. Holds it like this, see, and brings it down. You notice the cock on the arm? He brings it down like that. He whips that ball like this. And so the ball really has a peculiar uh, look of rising up at you from out of the ground. Now, that's very different from when, say, Sandy Koufax is pitching, and he throws that ball overhand, and it seems to be coming from above down at you, which means that the ball is more visible when you're batting against a conventional hardball pitcher. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, here's another thing. Many of the softball pitchers 
use what they call a leg motion. Now, I will describe to you what a leg motion is. That is, when the guy is pitching, he throws his left leg high. And as he throws that ball, as he winds up and lets the ball go, he follows through, you can't really see it because his leg is up. So here's his leg sticking out in front of him about four feet, and all of a sudden, it's somehow you get the impression that the ball is coming out of the heel of his shoe. And the heel of his shoe is right in your face. So <laughs> the next thing you know, that ball is coming. Now, now many a good softball pitcher, I, don't, I hope this is not boring you, but many a good softball pitcher has delivered uh, and has learned to do this. This, this is one of the worst types of delivery uh, that a, soft, a good softball pitcher will have. And that is a climbing drop. Now, that's a curious pitch. It seems to be a paradox. If you can imagine a pitch that rises and drops simultaneously, well, that's what a good softball pitcher can do. In other words, the ball goes, whew, it comes up, and it's humpbacked. If you can imagine a humpback liner, it goes whew, like that, and cuts down. You have to step into it. Well, all right, now you got the scene. It is, it is hot. It is, it is steamy. The temperature is about, uh, I would say, uh, 87 degrees. And you see the glow of the steel mill off in the distance. And you can hear the clink of glasses. Uh, Chicago is a city of taverns. Really, every, every block in Chicago, I, I defy you to find one block in Chicago that does not have a minimum of two taverns, one on each end of the block. And usually uh, they throw in two or three in the middle so that if a guy's going from one end of the block to the other that he doesn't run out of thirst or gas in the middle. You know, he can stop by there. So these taverns, and the family tavern is a big thing in Chicago. You know, this is a uh, this is uh, very different from New York. Uh, by, by that, I mean the family tavern is a place where the people, the entire family goes every night. Uh, it's not a place where a guy just goes to get drunk or to drink on his way home. It's where the family goes on uh, at night. And so at uh, 7, 8 o'clock, uh, you'll see these joints just loaded up with about 5,000 little kids running around on the floor and with, uh, with big fat ladies and grandmothers and the whole scene. Everybody's there, and they're drinking the beer, and they're, they're uh, talking and playing the jukebox. And once in a while, you'll see the ball players uh, drifting in and out. Now, they're the heroes. Every one of the ball players who play for the various teams are kind of like the heroes of this particular club. Now, do you follow what I'm saying here? That when, when a ball club plays for a tavern, they kind of represent that whole neighborhood. It's like the club, all the people who come to this tavern. That's like if you you know, if you live down the village and you always go, say, uh, oh, you hang, hang around the Cedar Bar, we'll say, or, or maybe you hang around uh, the Ninth Circle. Well, if you can imagine that whole crowd of people being expanded to include all the grandmothers uh, and all the uncles and the aunts and the kids. And they are deeply involved in this joint. They all know each other. It's all kind of a revolving social world. It's a real in world. And they have their own individual ball club. And so when, uh, uh, when Flick's Tavern, we'll say, is playing against the Bluebird Tavern, there's a fantastic rivalry. Because these people not only don't go into each other's tavern, they vaguely suspect that the other tavern is a bunch of bums. Oh, yeah, you know, their tavern is a nice, you know, it's a nice family place. That other one is down by the pool room. You know, it's a bunch of bums. And, and each, tavern, each tavern thinks that of the other one. So you have this tremendous rivalry. And, and the typical ball game, you want to hear where the typical game starts out? It's now about 7 o'clock, you see. And the two ball clubs have arrived. We're going to play St. Ignatius. And it's hot. 
And the cars are all parked around there, and you see guys are making love to their chicks in the cars, and they're watching, and they're they're uh, they're they've got their lights on, and everybody's yelling and hollering, and the people are up in the stands. You can hear the sound of the hot dog vendors and so on. And I am I am out there. See, at that time I'm playing second base, and I'm out there at second base, and I'm kicking the dirt around. I'm waiting for the ball game to get underway, and the umpires come out. Now the umpire is play is paid by both teams. Uh, we have the regular rule of the of the games are is this way that the tavern who is sponsoring the team we pay the umpire. That means that the home team pays the umpire in this case, and when they play at our field, uh, we pay the umpire. So the two umpires there's always two. There's one guy behind the plate, and there's another guy who works behind the pitcher's mound. He works out there and he calls. Uh, safe to second. You know, he calls the the base player, so he's out there. And immediately, we start hollering at him. Immediately, somebody says, "Ah, hey, they say, now watch, watch over here. Oh, hey, oh, oh. they start right away. You start, you start griping about him. <laughs> and he looks around. He's got that blank, impassive face of the paid umpire. He's getting five bucks for the game, you know, and he's very official. He's seen a lot of umpires work at Comiskey Park, and he knows how they stand. And you know that every neighborhood has two or three old codgers who look forward to the summer. They're umpires, and they earn five dollars a night umpiring, and they they themselves have a certain celebrity, and so when the umpire and oh they they make a big fetish of impartiality, so none of them will drink their beer at the taverns where the <laughs> the ball clubs are, are that they're going to umpire, so uh, you'll you'll see these umpires walking and once in a while you'll see them with their little hats on, so you got the scene. It's now seven o'clock, the the ball club the ball clubs are all out there. And uh, St. Ignatius is now taking the field. We're going to be, we're first up, of course, because we're the visiting team. And so Shepard is batting second in the lineup. He sits down there on the bench, and behind him are all these girls. And all the girls are immediate. There's always, there's always a whole bunch of girls who follow ball clubs. You're aware of that, of course. Uh, just like Major League ball players, this is, this is what happens with softball players. And there's always about 50 girls sitting behind the bench. And always, hey, wow. Once in a while, uh, one of us will turn around and I'll, I'll say to uh, Claudie Eaton, I'll say, hey, Claude, hey, take a look at that blonde, the one that, the one over there by third base. And uh, Claude looks up and he says, oh, boy, I'll tell you, man, I, I know that chick. I took her to Riverside Park last week. <laughs> wow. And so we're here, we're sitting there back and forth. And the ball players, we played each other because we all know. These are, in a sense, these are pro ball players because we're all getting paid, you know. Uh, at this point, uh, it's it's very important to these taverns because they get a lot of advertising out of it. And there's a lot of jockeying, so all the ball players, depending on how uh, how their standing is in the league, how how good they are, one thing or other, you it ranges all the way from about ten dollars a game to I'd say roughly sometimes as high. A, a really good ball player in one of the fast leagues will earn himself. You know, you know, uh, believe it or not, Matt, a guy will earn a hundred bucks a night. And uh, oh yeah, wow! Uh, he'll earn himself a hundred bucks a game. A really good pitcher, sometimes as high as two and three hundred dollars a game, depending on uh, on the uh, on the league. So uh, a guy will be earning a hundred bucks a night. He'll be pitching maybe three, four, five nights a week, and that's a fantastic amount of money uh, in a steel mill world. And oh, he's a, he's a real big celebrity. So uh, we're sitting down there, ready, waiting for the ball game to begin. And out there on the mound. Lefty, Lefty, uh, I'll never forget that Lefty Gornier or something like that. Lefty Gornier, was that his name? Gornier, yeah. Lefty Gornier uh, is out there uh, warming up. And, well, he's got an illegal delivery. 
Now, perhaps you don't know that softball players, just like hardball players, have got their whole the whole shtick going about various illegalities. Now, uh, how many times during a season will the bench start yelling at the umpire uh, because of some pitcher who's throwing a spitter? Invariably, they used to do this with Juan Spahn, uh, Lou Burdett. Uh, there's about 25 pitchers right now. Immediately, uh, somebody starts hollering, Hey, hey, watch the spitter! Watch him! Hey! Call for that ball! Come on, Charlie, let's see the ball! Well, they're, they're claiming that because he's throwing such a curveball, he must be throwing a spitter. Well, <laughs> about the first five pitches, immediately our bench is yelling. There's a big uproar because we claim that Lefty is throwing a sidearm delivery. He's not throwing an underarm delivery. He's throwing a sidearm delivery. He's not crooking his elbow. And so Lefty is out there. He's whipping them in, you know, whipping them in one after the other. And we're starting to yell. Well, all right. The first guy up is Claudia Eaton. You got it? Okay, Claudia Eaton is our little shortstop leadoff hitter. Claude gets up the bat. And uh, he takes the, the first pitch as an inside ball, a strike. And Bolas Rakowski, sitting down at the end, starts yelling in Polish. He's mad. He starts hollering in Polish about the illegal delivery. Uh, Claude turns around, winks at Bolas, gets back in, kicks the dirt a little bit. Lefty winds up. Claude lays down a bunt down the third baseline. Lefty falls off the mound trying to field it, and Claude is at first safe. And immediately all the horns start going, beep, 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 beep. That is our contingent. You see, all the cars have driven over from from Flick's Tavern, and they're they're applauding. Beep 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 beep. Ooga ooga. Beep beep. And Claude is on first base. <laughs> he spits. All right, Shepard is up to bat now. See, so I I dig in. Lefty winds up. Here's that pitch inside and low. I let it go by for a ball. Immediately, Lefty walks off the mound. He starts swearing at Polish. He starts hollering at Polish down at the umpire. Stop it! Stop it! Stop Stotch, the umpire, turns around and turns his back. Immediately, all the horns start going, Boo, 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 ooga, ooga. Well, Shepard finally flies out to deep center field. Okay? And then up steps Bolas Rakowski, our ace. Boy, what a hitter. Bolas is a switch hitter. Since lefty's pitching left-handed, Bolas switches around and is now batting from the right-hand side of the plate. Claude takes a short leadoff. Lefty winds up and pitches. Pow! Bolas drills one down the third baseline. It's going all the way out. It bounces off the wall. It is a double. And Claude Eaton scores. You got the scene? All right. Inning now after inning goes by. It is now the sixth inning. I'll describe this. I'm describing an exact, uh, an actual ball game now. It is now the sixth inning. The score is tied. It is a seven-inning game. They've got the lights on. Shepard is up to bat. They wind up the pitch. It's an inside pitch. Shepard lays down a bunt. It rolls out to the pitcher's mound. The pitcher tries to field it, and it's too late. Shepard is safe. You got it? All right, I'm on first base now. I'm, I'm moving back and forth out on first base. I'm trying to needle a pitcher, see. I'm walking back. Bolas is up the bat again. The windup, the pitch. Bolas belts one right over second base into center field. Shepard pulls up at second. Safe. And now there's runners on first and second. And who is up? Bob Umbaugh. Umbaugh is a left-handed hitter, who, by the way, is a solid 086 hitter. You got it? All right. So, Bolas looks down at second. He gives me the raised eyebrow, who says, and that eyebrow says, since Umbaugh is not going to hit, let's try our double steal. Okay? All right. Shepard is taking a short lead off, off off second base. Bolas is leading off. There's the wind-up of the pitch. It's an inside ball, and low ball one on Bob Umbaugh. Shepard goes back, touches up. 
Polis goes back, touches up. Lefty looks back. Shepard stands on second base and smirks. He looks over to first. Polis stands on first base and spits. All right, Lefty winds up. There's the pitch. There's Lefty's famous blooper pitch. Umbaugh swings. A short fly ball. It's going, and it drops in the short right field for a single. Shepard comes charging into third base. There's the throw to third base. Shepard slides. They collide. The third baseman is down. Shepard is up. The third baseman hits Shepard in the mouth. Shepard hits the third baseman in the mouth. The fans are crowding out of the stands. The umpires are crowding forward. Five minutes later, the police arrive. You don't want to hear the rest of the story, do you? <laughs> I'll tell you... What a melee. I am not exaggerating. I got up off the ground. That third baseman swung that ball after I had knocked him flat. He swung the ball, hit me in the mouth. I swung, hit him in the stomach, and all of a sudden, a large girl was out there on the, on the field. She hit me on the back of the head. She had something in a bag, I remember. Hit me in the back of the head with some kind of a sack. And that's what reminded me of it when I read this. Well, there were ladies, there were men, there were kids, there were dogs, there were hot dog vendors. This fight went on for about 40 minutes all over St. Ignatius Field until the police arrived, they broke it all up, and we got back in our car and drove home, and the St. Ignatius team drove home, and that was the end of another fantastic ball game. And you know that every, every night, every night, there would be a reporter in the stands uh, these things are very seriously followed. And so the next day, the box score would appear in the paper. Uh, what you what you did uh, the night before it would say, uh, uh, Shepard, uh, up three times, one hit, uh, scored one run, errors, zero. Uh, you know, the reg regular line score. And then down at the bottom, there would always be a little comment. Uh, on the part of the reporter as to what kind of a ball game it was. Just a little tiny capsule line. Like, for example, he would say, game called at the end of sixth inning because of riot. <laughs> I'm not serious. They'd say, game called at the end of sixth inning because of riot to be replayed at a later date, which meant that St. Ignatius and Flick's Tavern would meet a couple of weeks later under more neutral grounds. Now, I remember one time, you want to hear more, you want to hear more remember, uh, remembrances of softball? I remember one time we're playing in a, uh, we're playing in a, in a playoff game, big important playoff game. And, uh, every year around about, uh, September, we had these big league playoffs. They were the equivalent of the World Series. And they used to have two sections of the league. They would call it the East section or the West section, which would be the equivalent of the American League and the National League. And the two teams, that won their league division would play it off for the Gold Cup, the championship. And incidentally, I, I, I say this with, uh, with some pride. Right now, uh, in, in, in a certain library in Hammond, Indiana, I have it on good, very, very good authority that right now, at this very minute, there is a huge silver trophy. And that silver trophy has on top of it a ball player, you know, in, in full swing, at the end of the swing, big silver ball player. And on the bottom of it, it says, Class A Industrial State Champions, National Champion Runner-Up. And it has, it has the name of the ball team that I played on, and it has all the ball players and the scores of the games that we played when we won the state championship 
And then it has the scores of the games that we played in the national champ, which was the national finals played at Soldier's Field, and the final two games that we lost. Uh, one of them, by the way, was a, was a no-hitter pitched against us. But I say with great pride, right now there is out there in the darkness in a glass case, there is this silver ball player. And it says state champions. Got the whole thing. Well, all right. <laughs> I, I remember we're playing in a playoff game. Let me tell you one of those unbelievable moments, just unbelievable moments of terrible, terrible, uh, oh, what a, what a sense of frustration. Boy, I've had about ten moments in my life where I've really had, uh, you know, some really terrible moments. Uh, and this was one of them. I am playing. It's it's in it's in the uh, one of the big games, a big playoff game, and we're playing. There must have been five thousand people, which is a lot of people for a softball game. About five to eight thousand people were playing. This is fast pitching, of course. It's a night game, and we are playing against this ball club. I think it was from some place like Flint, Michigan, and it is a tough ball game. Oh boy, what a ball! What a ball game! It's about in the sixth inning, and there has been maybe one hit. This guy is really spinning a ball game. He is throwing that ball in. It was coming in like a like a firecracker, a real snapper. And our pitcher, who was Bolas, is pitching one of the best ball games he ever pitched. And I am at bat. There's nobody on. Two outs. It's the last of the sixth inning. This guy throws past right past me. He throws two strikes. And I'm getting a little worried. You know, he's already got two strikes on me. And you get that edge when you've got two strikes on you and no balls. You begin to get a little nervous. See. So I, I, I'm going to step into the next one. Well, the next one is high and outside. I let it go by. It is two balls or two strikes and one ball. And the next one, he grooves it. But he didn't really groove it. He grooved it. He grooved it in that way, a, a, a low sloping drop. Well, I saw it. I knew it was going to be that. I stepped into it, and oh, what a great feeling. I belted one. I golfed it, you know. And, and the instant I hit it, I knew it was going. You know, I golfed that ball. That son of a gun rose up, 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 up. I saw it go up, 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 and I am off. I said, holy smoke, Shepard's done it again. Off it goes and over the left center field wall on the line. Well, the crowd goes eight. Shepard comes trotting around second. He comes trotting around third. He comes trotting around home plate. He steps on home plate. The score is now one to nothing. All of a sudden, the pitcher takes the ball from the umpire. You know, the umpire's got a new ball. He takes the ball, tosses it back to the second baseman, who touches second base, and the umpire hollers, You're out! Shepard did not touch second base. Did you know that rule, friends? Well, <laughs> indeed. Shepard did not touch second base. We lost the ball game one to nothing. I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. I fly so high, nearly reach the sky. You know, I have a feeling that had I touched second base and had we won that ball game, that I would be Johnny Carson tonight. I'd have gone all the way.